let's go ahead and get started. Sorry, we're about two minutes late. I had to make sure we had room on the video memory card. Uh, for those of you that don't know, we do record each week. So if you miss a week, you got to work, you got a business meeting, high-powered client, whatever you jet setters do, uh, you can catch it online on my YouTube channel, Disciple Dojo, on YouTube. Each week we post it uh, so you can follow along. And eventually we'll have the whole book of Exodus on video set. So if you ever do a future small group and you need something to fill in for a week or something like that. So the goal is to put those resources online, free, available to the community, um, as an outreach of Bruce Chris, and the online portion is an outreach of my ministry, Disciple Dojo. Uh, for those of you that don't know, my name is J.M. Smith, and welcome. We do this every week, every Tuesday. Uh, the owner, Jeff Conway, is gracious enough to provide us with a meal each week, and we just ask people to bring a donation for the kitchen staff that prepares it. All that money goes straight to them. Uh, Jeff doesn't get anything from this. I don't get anything from this. However, if you would like to support well, if you want to support Ruth's Chris, come eat here for dinner uh, sometime. If you can't afford that and want a more affordable option of supporting the ministry, uh, I, Disciple Dojo Ministry, is always looking for monthly supporters at $10 a month, $25 a month, $50 a month, $100 a month. And there's some incentives that come with that in terms of curriculum material that I put out that you get if you become a partner. So I would love, if you have any questions about that uh, or you feel God moving you to help out, Always looking for monthly supporters to make this a lot easier to do. Uh, so, we're in Exodus. We're in Exodus chapter 11. We go through the book of Exodus. We're going chapter by chapter. We're reading. We're getting into the text. We're seeing the big picture of God's story. Remember, that's why we do what we do at this Bible study. We don't focus on life application. We don't focus on memory verses. We don't focus on a feel-good verse of the day or anything like that. We just read the story of God, and we walk through the story of God, and we apply that as it fits in our own lives, wherever we are, uh, because God's word will apply differently to different people in different settings, but it will always be applicable to everyone in some way. So the biggest hindrance for Christians in North America in particular is that we don't teach our people to read through the Bible. Uh, if we do, we do it as a read through the Bible in a year so you can check it off on your checklist, you know, or, you know, read through the verses that you like and skip the ones that are boring. And, and, and we want to really mine scripture. We want to dig into it and mine it for all it's worth, all the treasure that's hidden away in there, in these passages that people frequently skip over. So we're in Exodus 11, and actually Exodus 11 is right on the heels of Exodus 10. Duh. But it's literally, it's the same incident. It's the same moment. See, we've said before, chapters and verses were added thousands of years after the Bible was written. So you can safely ignore them when you're doing interpretation because they were added later as reader helps. And sometimes they're reader helps. Sometimes they're not so helpful. In this case, chapter 11, chapter break, comes at a not so helpful point because it's in the middle of this conversation Moses is having with Pharaoh. All right? There's a parenthetical comment that's inserted into the middle of Pharaoh and Moses' discussion that sort of sums up or brings the reader up to speed and has a pause before the announcement of the final plague in this series. So it's important to keep that in mind. In, in the Hebrew scriptures, it's not like English storytelling where you tell something and then you tell what happens next and then you tell what happens next. 
it's, it's more thematic. You can have an event that's spoken of, and then the writer will stop, and he'll go back, and he'll speak at something about an earlier time. Um, or he'll jump ahead and, and, and talk about something that's going to happen later, and then go back. It's, it's, the technical word is dyschronologization, which is your fun word for the day. But it means not telling stuff in the exact order all the time. And there's multiple places where that happens. Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 are a great example. Genesis 1 gives the big picture. Genesis 2 then zooms back into the events of a certain period of Genesis 1. Uh, those of you that were here about two and a half years ago, you should remember that uh, because we studied all of Genesis together. So in Exodus 10, it ends, if you flip back to Exodus 10, it ends with uh, Pharaoh's heart, God hardening his heart. He's not willing to let the Israelites go. So Pharaoh tells Moses, get out of my sight. Make sure you don't appear to me before me again. The day you see my face, you will die. And then Moses says, just as you said, I'll never appear before you again. But he doesn't leave. Then we get to Exodus 11. And you can put a, if you're, if you're a writer in your Bible, which you can, there's nothing unholy about that. Uh, in fact, it's very helpful. It's okay to do it. It's okay to do it. You have permission. You can put a little bracket around chapter 11, verse 1, and all the way down to verse 3. And some translations put this in parentheses, or parts of it in parentheses. But it's a, the whole paragraph is a parenthetical thought. It's, it's like a pause in the action. Moses says, you'll never see me again and live. Pause. Narrator speaks. Now the Lord had said to Moses, I'll bring one more plague on Pharaoh and on Egypt. After that, he will let you go from here. When he does, he will drive you out completely. Remember, all this time, Pharaoh has not, he's been one to say, okay, just the men, you, you can go, but you have to go somewhere within the country. Moses says, we can't do that, we gotta leave. Okay, well you can go, but just the men can go. Can't do that, men, women, and children. Okay, you men, women, children can go, but you gotta leave your animals. Nope, animals have to go too. So Moses, uh, Pharaoh's being stubborn, 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 and now God's saying, Pharaoh's actually going to drive you all out. He's going to, he is, after this play, he is going to cast you out of his land. What he's refused to do for these previous nine plagues. So, tell the people that men and women alike are to ask their neighbors for articles of silver and gold. And neighbors, is not a great translation, it's kind of misleading in English. I mean, it is the word that's translated elsewhere as neighbors in Hebrew, but it, in this sense, the meaning is, ask your counterpart, your Egyptian counterparts. So like the, the Egyptian, the Hebrews, it's not like they were living intermingled among the Egyptians, remember? They were in Goshen, their land was separated throughout the plagues. It's, it's basically saying, ask the Egyptians, ask your fellow inhabitants of the land, ask your, the counterparts is the best way, I think, to put it. Ask the Egyptians who you know. But anyway, Go to the Egyptians and ask them for articles of silver and gold. And God says, uh, it says, um, the Lord had made the Egyptians favorably disposed toward the people. And Moses himself was highly regarded in Egypt by Pharaoh's officials and by the people. Highly regarded. Now that doesn't mean they liked Moses. Moses was not liked at this point. Obviously, Moses was the lightning rod. It was causing all of these disasters, all of the death of their livestock, their crops, their famine that set in, all of it. But he was highly regarded. He was, he was respected as a good translation or, or, or held in esteem. Because all of the Egyptians and all of Pharaoh's officials who had been right there during these confrontations, the Egyptians would have all heard about it as it trickled out from Pharaoh's chambers, but especially the officials, 
they all knew by this point, Moses is the real deal. His God has control over our gods. Our gods are powerless in the face of this former one of us who was actually a Hebrew who went away for 40 years and now he's back and worshiping this strange God. It doesn't have an image. It doesn't have a, an idol in its likeness. It doesn't, it's the God of the slave, this rabble of herdsmen. And, but yet they realized he's the real deal. This is the real God. And that's the purpose. You got to keep in mind, that's the purpose of the plagues to begin with. We saw last week, God could have, God said to Pharaoh, I could have already finished this by now. I could have, boom, snapped my finger, all Israel's free, already in the promised land. I could have done whatever I want. God is doing this not just for the benefit of those Israelites. He's doing it for the benefit of those Israelites on the stage of world history. And we know that because we're reading it. All For all time, God, Yahweh, would be the God who brought your forefathers out of the land of slavery, out of the house of Egypt. The land of Egypt, house of slavery, excuse me. He would be the God of the Exodus. The Exodus is the gospel for the Jewish people all throughout history. When we think of Christmas and Easter, we think those are the big events. For the Jewish people up until Jesus and those that don't believe in Jesus even today, the Exodus is the big event. Passover is the main holiday. Hanukkah is, is a minor, it's not even, it just happens to fall near Christmas so it gets a lot of kitsch and a lot of uh, you know, commercialism. Passover is the heart and the soul of the Hebrew people throughout Scripture and into the New Testament. Jesus instituted communion as a Passover meal. Jesus was crucified on Passover. The Holy Spirit descended at Pentecost, which was the holiday that celebrated the giving of the law at Mount Sinai 50 days after Passover. So all of our theology revolves around the events of these chapters. And the more we know the events of these chapters, the richer our New Testament understanding is. This is not just the book of the Jews. This is our Bible because we Gentiles, some of you in here may be Jewish, but those of us who are not ethnically Jewish, we have been grafted into the people of Israel. We have been brought into the covenant that God made with Abraham. And Paul says flat out in Galatians and Ephesians, if you are in Christ, then you are Abraham's seed. You are heirs to the promises. So this is our history. These are our people that were enslaved because we've been adopted into the family. Just like a number of Egyptians will be in the next few chapters. Because Israel's not going to leave Egypt just the Israelites. It's going to be the Israelites and all of the mixed multitude of the Egyptians who see what's going on, who've learned the lesson of these plagues, and who go out with Egypt, with the Israelites, because they realize wherever they're going, their God is the God of the world. He's the God in control. And we're going to follow them. So people like Caleb, for instance, Joshua and Caleb despised the only one of two people that left Egypt and made it into Israel alive. Caleb is not an Israelite. He's a Kenizzite. He's one of the people that came up with Israel, yet he's counted among the tribes of Israel and given land and inheritance. So even in the Old Testament, ethnicity does not determine righteousness or holiness or standing before God. God's not ethnocentric. That's one of the biggest misconceptions people have about the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament. They think, oh, he's the God of the Jews. 
He is the God of the Israelites because they are his vehicle that he's going to use to bring the world back into relationship with him. They're his tool. The chosen people are chosen to be an instrument that the God who created all of the nations uses to reach those nations. So there's no room for ethnocentricity in the Old Testament itself. And it's a misreading. It's a popular misreading. It's a popular misunderstanding. Uh, but it's not actually biblical. So God's going to make the Egyptians favorably disposed, or in other words, they're going to realize, and they're going to give the Hebrews from their silver and from their gold. And the Israelites will leave Egypt with all of the gold and all the silver needed to, to enter into Canaan, to build the tabernacle, to, to settle down. To, they're leaving not empty-handed. And this is going to be enshrined in Exodus, in, 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 excuse me, in Deuteronomy, in Torah law. This will actually be enshrined. Deuteronomy 15, when God is giving Israel legislation about how they are to treat their servants in the future. And I say servants because slaves is too harsh a term, but servants is really too light a term. Indentured servants, or there's not a good Hebrew, there's not a good English translation for the Hebrew word edit, which is what we translate as slave. But when God is giving Israel its instructions on how it should treat its evids, its slaves, he'll say in Deuteronomy 15, only six years can a slave serve. After six years, you have to send them out, let them go, and you have to give them the provisions and the money and the wealth that they need to start their new life. Because that's payment for those years that they've served you. That's something that gets missed in discussions about biblical slavery people want to start chiming in and jumping in on it and comparing it to all the evils of the Atlantic slave trade, which is nothing like that. Um, the, the, the idea is, and we see it in here, is God doesn't send out his people out of slavery, out of oppression, empty-handed. He doesn't just say, all right, now you're free. Go die in the desert. There's provision for them. And even the Egyptians, they, Israel's been enslaved, I say it a lot, for longer than America has been a nation. Israel has been enslaved by Egypt for 400 years. That's a lot of owed uh, uh, restitution. And so God is going to provide that through the Egyptians. They're going to give the people what they need. They'll also need all that gold to build the tabernacle, the temple. Now they'll misuse that gold in one of the jarring incidences in the book of Exodus where they build the golden calf. Right? They're going to waste a lot of that gold on idolatry. We'll get to that. But that's a little bit in the future. Um, so, verse 4. Back to the conversation. Now, this is we, the narrator just told us this is what's going to happen. This is what God's done. This is how the Israelites are going to leave. This is foreshadowing. Back to the conversation with Pharaoh. So, Moses said, after he just said, you won't see my face again and live. This is what the Lord says. About midnight, I will go throughout Egypt. Every firstborn son in Egypt will die. From the firstborn son of Pharaoh who sits on the throne to the firstborn son of the slave girl who is at the hand mill, and all the firstborn of the cattle as well. There will be loud wailing throughout Egypt, worse than there's ever been or ever will be again. But among the Israelites, not a dog will bark at any man or animal. Uh, it's a, that's an idiom in Hebrew. It's literally, I think, not a dog will stick out its tongue. And there, there's not quite consensus on what it means. It's one of those figures of speech that we don't have, but it means that there will be complete peace. Like there won't even be barking dogs. Like it'll be 
just peaceful and silent, as opposed to throughout Egypt where there would be great cries and wailing among people. Um, then you will know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. All these officials of yours will come to me, bowing down before me. We don't know if that me is Moses, or if that me is God, or if it's intentionally ambiguous because it's kind of both, since Moses represents God to Pharaoh. Uh, all the officials will come bowing down before me and saying, Go, you and all the people who follow you. After that, I will go. And IV says leave, but it's the same word. I will go. Then Moses, hot with anger, went. Or as the IV says, he left Pharaoh uh, furious. The Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will refuse to listen to you so that my wonders may be multiplied in Egypt. Moses and Aaron performed all these wonders before Pharaoh, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not let the Israelites go out of his country. That's a summary statement, verses 9 and 10, or a summary of the entire previous chapters. So it sums up all these wonders, all these plagues that, that Moses had done. They were all for the purpose of teaching not just Pharaoh, not just the Egyptians, but the Israelites and the future generations of Israelites, and the future generation of Egyptians, and all who would come and read this were to know that, remember we've talked about, each plague was targeting or aimed against a specific Egyptian god. Each of the previous nine plagues, they came in cycles of three. So for a recap, the first, the Nile was turned to blood. The Nile was the light, seen as the, literally the life force of Osiris, the blood, uh, the, the life blood of Egypt. The Nile is why Egypt was Egypt, because of its yearly flowing, bringing in the rich soil from south, southern Africa up into the Delta region, creating Egypt's uh, crops and irrigation, and that's why Egypt was the breadbasket of the world, because of the Nile. And yet God, ironically, first sign was he turned the, quote, lifeblood of Egypt into actual bloody or blood-like stuff. Uh, causing death where what had brought life. The next plague, uh, the frogs, and then the frogs was coming up over the land. And the irony of that is the frogs were a symbol of fertility in Egypt. They were a symbol of the goddess, or the god Heck. And Heck was this god that, that involved or oversaw fertility and, and uh, the abundance and all of that. And so God just, mul okay, you want fertility? How about swarms of frogs coming up everywhere, all the way up in your houses? So frogs everywhere. And then this, uh, the plagues that came after, the gnats and the flies, uh, that was the realm, the domain of the sky god, Nut, and, uh, and, and controlling of the winds and the swarms. And, and God says, nope, I'm in control of that as well. And so there were the gnats, and then there were the biting flies. Then the livestock that were plagued, that was the livestock were the symbol of the god Hathor. And there was also the apis or the apis bull. Among Egypt, it was like the holy cow. If you look at Egyptian art, you see a lot of cows, a lot of bulls. And um, again, God targeting that symbolically through the death of all these livestock. And then the boils that broke out on the Egyptians that couldn't be healed. Uh, the Egyptian god Imhotep was the healer god, and yet the, the, the healers couldn't even stand before Moses because the boils were so bad. The magicians couldn't replicate it. And then again, the last two signs targeted not just Nut, but also targeted the main god of Egypt, Ra, or Re or Amun-Re, or Atu, he went by different names, but it was the sun itself. And so there was hail and there was fire in the sky, which could be lightning or it could be something even just like God when he shows up in fire and storm. But showing that the God of Israel is not just the God of these things on the ground or in the water, you know, he is the God of the heavens and the elements themselves were starting to become chaotic and go back to their pre-creation state.
an eclipse, remember, we saw it was darkness to the point where you couldn't move. There was total darkness in Egypt, but not in Goshen. So that's how we know it wasn't an eclipse. Um, it was basically telling Egypt, your gods are dead. The god of these slaves is the one who reigns. So all of these signs, and they've increased in these cycles of threes, and now there's a pause, a pregnant pause, so to speak, before the final sign is given, before the final uh, judgment and uh, wonder is how it's used. Plague is how it's used. It's all of the above. It's a teaching moment, and it's going to be worse than anything that had come before. And so, because of that, everyone will know, Egyptian and Israelite, that God is the one true God. However, for us, this brings up a, a conundrum. Um, why is God taking the innocent life? Why didn't God kill Pharaoh instead of his firstborn son? What did the firstborn son of the handmaiden at the, at the handmill have to do, had, had to experience this, the death of, of her child? You know, what did she do? And all of that. This is where in scripture what we have to do as faithful interpreters is we have to let scripture say what it says. And we have to weigh what it says in light of what has come before. And in passages like this and other passages when we start to read where it starts to say, God, you're going a little overboard here. It's always important to keep in mind what's come before. Remember, think back to Genesis 18, when God was going to judge another instance where God was going to bring national or collective judgment upon an evil people. It was the people of the plains, Sodom and Gomorrah and the other cities. And Abraham and God have this conversation. He doesn't even know he's talking to God entirely, but he knows he's talking to someone who's representing God. Later he finds out it actually was God. And Abraham pleads for the life of Sodom. And says, Lord, who, how could the judge of all the earth not do what's right? Are you going to sweep away the righteous with the wicked? And so him and, him and Abraham enter, God and Abraham enter into this discussion where they, it's kind of like this Middle Eastern bartering, or not bartering, haggling. And, and God says, if there's, you find 50 righteous people in the city, I'll spare the entire city's evil for 50. And, and uh, Abraham says, how about 40? <laughs> How about, you know, and it gets it all the way down to 10. He says, you find 10 righteous people in this entire area, and I will forego my judgment. And he couldn't find them, and, and God's judgment came. But that's important, because what that shows before any of this is it shows that God doesn't act capriciously or arbitrarily, and he's not, he's not um, looking for reasons to wipe out the innocent along with the wicked. And so there are things that God allows to happen or even that God brings about that do result in the death of people who are innocent. You know the earthquake in Nepal that just happened the other day? A church was destroyed and Christians died. Now Christians are a tiny, tiny minority. And so we would say, well God, why didn't you do like you did in Egypt in Nepal? Why not have everything else be destroyed, all the Buddhist temples and all that, but leave the church standing? Wouldn't that have been a great testimony? doesn't. We don't know why. There's going to be events throughout Scripture where God acts in ways that confound even the biblical authors. And they'll cry out to God in the Psalms. They'll cry out to God like Habakkuk does. I don't know what you're doing and I don't like it. And Scripture gives us that permission. It gives us that permission. It doesn't tell us, well, actually, these infants that all died were guilty of inheriting Adam's sin. And so they really are innocent and they deserve the wrath that God... Nonsense. The Bible doesn't even go in that direction. That's much later theological musings that would arrive at that. 
what we do know is that the God who went throughout Egypt and took the lives of the firstborn, and, and make no mistake, God did take their lives. He says, I will go throughout Egypt. This is not a secondary plague like the others. This is God's unmediated presence going throughout. And the only thing that kept the Israelite children from dying as well is the blood on their doorposts. And in all of that, there's teaching and there's symbolism. Remember, before this, way back in chapter 4, when Moses was first told about his mission, God said, Israel is my firstborn. Egypt has oppressed my firstborn. Egypt has destroyed my firstborn by throwing them into the Nile. See, it wasn't just Egyptian innocent babies that have been killed. Hebrew innocent babies have been killed. So God says, I am going to claim Israel or Egypt's firstborn in, in, in recompense for letting my firstborn go. But even when they come out, God will tell the Hebrews, I redeemed you through the blood of the Passover, and you now, throughout your generations, will have to redeem your firstborn through a sacrifice offered when they're born. So there'll be a system that even the Israelites' firstborn weren't theirs. All the firstborn belong to God, is what's being taught, which is symbolic of saying everything belongs to God. Because Pharaoh himself was seen as the firstborn of the son God, Ra, and his son would then inherit that title. So a blow against the firstborn of Pharaoh was a blow against all of the Egyptian pantheon, all of the Egyptian governmental structure, all of the Egyptian oppression. So this is where we have to realize, God is, this is not an everyday moment, okay? This is not the normal Christian life, to borrow a phrase from Watchman Nee. This is not how God acts all the time. This is a particular and a once in, in creation moment in Israel's history. And in those type of moments, God acts in ways that they're not prescriptive. They're not setting a pattern for how we should act. No Israelite kills anyone in this. It is all God's doing. If God is the author of life, then he is the only one who can, without any justification, take that life back. And that's a hard truth, and some Christian theologians try to get around that. They try to make God a little bit more cozy. But it's a truth that the Hebrew Bible holds up. And it says, even among his own people, I'd like to think of the Narnia series, C.S. Lewis, the line about Aslan. It's so fantastic. And Mrs. Beaver says, uh, you know, Lucy's scared when she hears about Aslan, this ferocious line. She says, oh my goodness, is he safe? And I think Mr. Beaver or Mrs. Beaver, one of the two, says, no, of course he's not safe, but he's good. And that's a beautiful illustration of the nature of God in Scripture. Even in the New Testament, ask Ananias as the fire. Ask the people that were receiving revelation. Uh, God is not always safe, but he's good. And even when we can't see that goodness, we have to trust in that. Or we can choose not to trust. Choices are ours. We can say, God, I don't like how you did it. I'm going to reject you. We can do that. But for those who have read scripture and followed along with this epic that we're in, this overarching story, we see that at this one point, God killing the firstborn, that says nothing about the firstborn's eternal destiny. There's no reason to equate the people that die as they die and go to hell forever. We have no idea what God's doing, what, what the eternal fate of anyone that dies in those judgments is. So that's where we have to say we don't know and we trust and God is the God who does right. Will not the judge of the earth do what is right? God will do what is right. Will, and, and this life itself is a gift from him that he has the right to take and to give. And Egypt is going to find that out, as is Israel, 
starting next week because we're one minute over. So have a great week. Tell your friends who weren't here today that they missed their soul-saving lesson of the week. Too late. The door of the ark shut. No. Bring, tell your coworkers, your friends. Remember, we've got all these seats. We want to fill them up every week. Uh, thank you. Have a great week.